Hello and welcome to this week's Talking Pharmacy podcast. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. These are worrying times in the world, so it's nice to concentrate on pharmacy matters, isn't it, for the next 25 minutes or so. Later in the podcast, we hear from Graham Phillips, a good friend of the pod and the trade press as a whole, actually, and he's talking about his new state-of-the-art pharmacy in Letchworth. But let's kick off, as usual, with Good Week, Bad Week. Hello, Rob. Uh, What do you have for us? Hello, Richard, and hello, uh, listeners. Um, Well, I'm going to give credit where credit's due this week, Richard, and say well done to the NPA for raising the profile of one NHS review that definitely needs to hear more from community pharmacy. Um, the fuller stock take, as it's known, is designed to answer a particular question. How can primary care and system partners work together to best meet the health needs of people in their local areas? Um, the review is timed so it, it reports effectively just before the integrated care systems get to the next stage and start operations and it's important I think because most NHS reorganizations marginalize primary care even if they don't intend to and this review which is requested by NHS the new NHS chief executive Amanda Pritchard is designed to preempt the normal course of events by pitching ideas to improve primary care into the 42 integrated care systems as they form and start operations hence the idea of the stock take and hence the call from review chair Surrey GP Claire Fuller for good ideas, effective practices, things that work. And now Professor Fuller is one of the system leaders in the Surrey Heartland uh, integrated care system, but she's got a list of jobs as long as you're on. Says she's proud of the work being done in her own system, but she knows there is not a one size fits all solution and the challenges in one part of the country will be different to those faced in another. How often have we thought about that when we're thinking about pharmacy and local commissioning and all of that? Um, Now, to the MPA, the association has ensured that community pharmacy representation is on all the key theme groups in the review, and it's also convened at Roundtable on Community Pharmacy Integration with the team that are running the stock tape. So I think this is a really important initiative from the MPA, and I guess when you've got wily characters like Michael Lennox on the team, then probably shouldn't be surprised. I don't know who exactly they've invited to the Roundtable, other than they've gone cross-sector, so they say. But thank goodness they've taken a lead here and not left it to those who might be sitting around even now thinking, what stock take? Um, as we reported this week, MPA Chief Executive Mark Lionette says, local NHS systems need to be made aware of what's working and what is not working so well so that expectations can be properly established from the outset and good practice share here, here. Um, for me, and I'm sure for many of the people listening to this, local system leaders can't hear enough about community pharmacy. There's always a mountain to climb. When you consider that for most people in the NHS, primary care equals general practice and general practice equals primary care. Uh, and that's still the case. So we keep need to keep needing to contribute to these things. All views are welcome in the review. Yes, it is a bit of a faff. Uh, but pharmacists, pharmacy team members and anyone I'm quoting here now, anyone with good ideas of, or knowledge of effective practice, end quotes, and that includes all of us, I think, on this uh, on this podcast as well, can join the conversation at hashtag Fuller, that's Fuller with two L's, Fuller Stock Take, all one word, 
and via the reviews website, which is uh, www.fullerstocktake, or again, all one word, .crowdicity.com. Um, the process is very iterative. Comments on existing posts, ideas are encouraged. So if you've got five minutes, dip in and add your thoughts and views to the contributions there. And if you're knocking it out of the park with something locally, then for goodness sake, tell them. Um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You don't even know what's around the corner. And certainly that's true of anybody else in primary care. Um, now, I realise that some of our more jaded listeners um, might now be thinking, here he is banging on about localism in the NHS again. But I'm going to continue banging on about it until representation into and on these new structures is fixed for community pharmacy. Uh, even stuff coming out next week in the national contract, like stop smoking referrals from secondary care, will go nowhere if the local links on the ground do not exist. And where GPCPS, for example, is actually working, it's through local connect connectors who are making it happen. And in many cases, they're getting funded from local commissioners for implementation support. Of course, this review might not go anywhere or the community pharmacy input might, might end up being as influential as we want it to be. But one thing's for certain, if there's no input, then community pharmacy will exert no influence at all. So well done to the National Pharmacy Association. Yeah, thank you, Rob. And we'll, we'll put those details about how to get involved with this on the show notes to this podcast. And obviously we'll be reporting it um, in the magazines as well. So, yeah, so this is what well, this is the NPA urging pharmacists to feed into the fuller stock take, they're calling it, um, ahead of integrated care systems becoming statutory bodies in July. Like you say, Rob, um, I, the NPA has been quietly doing uh, some good work on this, thanks to people like Mr. Lennox, and making sure that community pharmacy's voice is heard as the NHS moves forward with these important reforms. I can only echo what you've just said there and, and what Mark Lionett and others have said, get involved. It's really important that you have your say and um, you contribute to this because it's uh, it's a very important restructure and it is going to affect you. So get involved. All right. Good start. Thank you for that, Rob. Um, Arthur, let's go to you next then. Good week or bad week? Uh, good week for employees at Boots. We ran a story last week uh, saying that Boots, who uh, are, of course, up for sale to the highest bidder and who are uh, uh, undertaking an exercise where they're reducing a lot of their opening hours at their stores. The plan is to reduce um, opening hours, I think, by an average of 6% per store. And there have been sort of concerns raised about the, how this might impact staffing and whether people might have their hours cut or and what position this might leave them in or whether it even face redundancies. But the PDA has confirmed that while the uh, the store opening hours review is going ahead, and I think the reduced hours the reduced hours will be sort of kicking in from about now from end of February beginning of March. Um, but the 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 multiple has abandoned plans for the time being uh to uh, it's abandoned any kind of exercise that would impact on people's hours so people so pharmacists and other employees we understand will have a bit more security um i think how, how this might play out um might vary from person to person we understand that there might be circumstances where say if if, if a branch originally opened from eight to five uh, but now it's going to open from from nine to five. The people might uh, be be in the in the branch anyway, be, um, be and be paid for that 
extra hour to just have a little time to a little time to prepare for the day which might be sort of welcome to a lot of uh to a lot of staff or there there will be cases we think where people will be sort of deployed to other stores um it's all sort of been uh discussed with uh between managers and staff and and it, and it is a little bit up in the air how exactly it's you know in the individuals working patterns are going to change but um I mean, given that you know there were there were reports pre- previously that people were were having talks with area managers and being told that they might have their hours cut by as much as ten percent, which is you know a couple of hundred pounds uh, worse off at the end of the month, which w- w- would have been a big worry. But so so I think this this announcement will will be uh, will be will come come as a welcome bit, bit of bit of relief to anyone who might have been affected. Um. So yeah, so that so so that's sort of the the good news on this front. There's sort of also developments on the on the boot sale talks this week as we're we're covering on on Pharmacy Network News. Um, we understand that, or Sky News has reported that the the front runner in the in the sale talks, Bain Capital and CBC, who prepared a joint bid, have actually walked away. So there's a bit of a question mark over the process now. But um, so I guess good good news and mixed news. Uh. For Boots this week. Yeah, thanks, Arthur. So Boots pressing ahead with with plans to reduce opening hours across many of its stores, but holding fire at the moment, well, according to the PDA anyway, to reduce staff hours. Arthur, did um, Boots comment on this story at all? They did not comment, but they did not deny the, the PDA's claim. Right, I see. I just wasn't sure whether this was... This counts as putting plans to reduce employee hours on hold or not really, to be honest, or whether it's just part of the process while they work things out in, in Nottingham over the, the opening hours across the estate. Um, I don't know. Let's see how how things pan out. Um, uncertain times for Boots employees, isn't it, with the, the sale um, and the contractual issues over hours and opening hours. So, yeah, uncertain times. Uh, let's see. Let's see what pans out there. Last week, I visited pharmacist Graham Phillips in Letchworth as he unveiled the latest addition to his Manor Pharmacy Group, the Letchworth Pharmacy. Before local MP Sir Oliver Heels cut the ribbon at the official opening, Graham and I sat down in one of the consultation rooms to talk about the new pharmacy. So, Graham, thanks for um, asking me along to the opening of Letchworth Pharmacy. Tell us about your new venture. First of all, thanks, thanks for coming, Richard. Great to catch up with you face to face. Well, I guess it, it starts with kind of points of principle, which is that I believe that um, pharmacists should only be, should be doing only the things that a pharmacist can do. Um, and I want all of us practising at the top of our licence. And that means elevating my tech team to do most of the dispensing. In fact, if it was up to me, um, as it is in hospital, the dispensary would be a pharmacist-free zone. <laughs> and in order to... Um, allow my techs to do as much as possible, let's use technology. So the vision was a complete integration of the PMR with the dispensing robot and with the vending machine, which is the prescription collection points are effectively a sophisticated vending machine. So let's use technology to the absolute maximum to free up time for the staff so that they can concentrate on the patients. And then let's have as clinical a model of community pharmacy as we can possibly have. Adding value to dispensing, 
I mean, the most exciting service that I think currently is being commissioned is the 24-hour APPM, 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. But I don't think it goes far enough. So already we're offering 24-hour blood pressure monitoring, which is more than most GPs can offer. But in the end, we just dump the workload on the GPs. Why are we not taking it one stage further? So my vision would be all of that, plus an independent prescriber, we should be controlling the, na the nation's blood pressure, not just monitoring it. So that's the point I'd like to get to. And this pharmacy is set up to achieve that kind of vision. And what's been the reaction of patients in Letchworth to the new pharmacy? We've deliberately called it Letchworth Pharmacy because they want the pharmacy to be seen as the pharmacy for the people of, of Letchworth. And so in creating the brand, that was a key part of it. Letchworth's independent pharmacy and we're calling it community pharmacy for the 21st century so we're, we're trying to communicate to uh, the people of Letchworth that, that there is this this new model they love it um, we're also broadcasting it on social media and uh, you've seen a few people come in yourself you've seen it's already quite a busy pharmacy the reaction from the patients has been extraordinary both face to face and on social media and ultimately we hope in, in terms of our services but so far, so good. Yeah, they, they really do love it. How important do you think is it that pharmacy gets the technological aspects of practice right to create this headroom to provide the clinical services like you're describing? Can you imagine running a pharmacy now without a computer in it? Now, when I first started in community pharmacy, there was me and a few shop girls. And a busy pharmacy was doing, I don't know, two, three thousand prescriptions a month. And the first thing I did was buy a typewriter because my handwriting is <laughs> terrible, right? So we've gone from handwriting to a typewriter to a word processor to a PMR. Why would it stop there? Um, the, the part of the point of um, success of general practice medicine is that what they do, they record what they've done. The part of the problem with pharmacy is we've got lots and lots of fantastic outputs but how often can we demonstrate that those translate to outcomes how are you ever going to do that without the use of technology so we should absolutely maximize the use of the technology not because we're frightened of it but because we should embrace it as the future the clinical future and to delegate as many as them of the mechanical tasks to a robot that we can Graeme, it, it seems to me you may be trying to prove a point with this business in terms of pharmacy's clinical future, as you describe it. Um, is this a template that, that more pharmacies could follow, you think? We're calling it community pharmacy for the 21st century for a reason, and that absolutely is the reason. We know how pharmacy performed during the COVID. We know the pressure the sector is under. I see no evidence that the NHS attitude towards pharmacy has changed one jot. I've always believed that they'd wait for the end of the COVID crisis, they'd wait for the political pressure to be off, and they go back to their original plan of closing pharmacies. The mere fact that lawyers have completely exited the country, that Boots business is up for sale, tells you the level of distress, financial distress there is in the sector. I also think there's an opportunity. I think the change in the way that community pharmacy, particularly independent community pharmacies, being seen as a result of COVID, both by patients 
and by politicians creates an opportunity. And we have a new chief executive of the NHS, we have a new chief pharmacist, and we need to go to them and present ourselves as their solution, as our solution to many of their problems. We need to go for it. And if I can be part of creating that model, that's kind of what I've always wanted to do. I mean, as you know, Richard, my dad's a pharmacist, my son's a pharmacist. I always set myself an ambition to leave the profession in a better state than I found it. And I'm being honest, I've completely failed in that endeavour. Um, although, from a clinical perspective, there are lots more opportunities. Remember, there were no IEPs when I qualified. Community pharmacy has gone through a de- dreadful time. If I can make, play some small part in proving what community pharmacy could be for the future, and that's commissioned through future generations, then I kind of feel I've done something worthwhile. Well, thank you, Graham. The pharmacy looks magnificent. Your local MP is coming to open it officially in a couple of hours. I know you want to get ready for that, but best of luck with your, your new venture. Um, it's really impressive. Well done. No, and thank you, Richard. Um, you and the pharmacy press do a sterling. I don't think you often get thanked, but I actually think that um, the pharmacy press does and should hold community pharmacy and the whole profession to account. But equally, I think you add a lot of value. Um, you're great advocates for us. Um, and thank you for everything that you and your colleagues do. Well, thank you, Graham. I'll make sure that's not cut from the final edit. <laughs> <laughs> that was Graham Phillips there talking technology, automation and clinical services in his new Letchworth Pharmacy. So let's go back to good week, bad week. Neil. Well, I've gone for um, the CCA and it's Chief Executive Malcolm Harrison, Richard. Um, it depends on how you look at this, I, I guess, but I've, I've gone for bad week simply because I don't believe that Mr. Harrison is speaking from a position of, of great strength. And I'll explain what I, what I mean. So on Friday, the PDA published uh, the latest of its Safer Pharmacies Charter, uh, in which it basically said the conditions pharmacists worked in, in, have worked in the, in the last year or so uh, saw an almost universal worsening of standards. Um, many PDA members felt unsafe at work, unable to raise concerns with senior management, didn't have regular adequate rest breaks and so on. Now, the PDA said in its charter, in its latest charter, that pharmacists at Boots, Lloyd's Pharmacy and Well, who responded to the to, to, the, to the survey, reported unachievable targets. They reported unrealistic time pressures. They reported even reported bullying and harassment. These, we have to say, are unconfirmed uh, reports. But nevertheless, this is what was fed into the to the survey. Um, the survey had just over 1,300 responses. Um, and right across the pharmacy spectrum, responses came from multiples, hospital pharmacy, independence, and, and, and so on. Um, now, I wanted, to, I wanted to know whether... You know, more than four years after the charter was launched in December 2017, that any CCA member had signed up to this at all, anyone. And Paul Day, the uh, PDA director, told me that none had, none had, none had signed up to it. So I asked the CCA and I said, you know, why have none of your members um, signed up to this really important charter, which, you know, after all, has a lot of, a lot of good stuff in it. And Malcolm Harrison, um, I was sent a, a, a statement attributed to Malcolm Harrison. And basically he said... That although um, his membership agrees in principle with a lot of what is in the charter, the CCA does, and this is the direct quote, does not recognise the PDA as an authority on matters of pharmacy safety. Um, He also said that his membership does not think that the charter adds anything more. In other words, it fails to cover things that are not already being, that are not being addressed. 
So basically, the CCA membership, it appears, from reading uh, Mr. Harrison's response, uh, just doesn't like being pushed. They don't like being pushed around, especially when it comes to you know, matters of maintaining health and safety and, uh, you know, when, amongst uh, uh, workers. Um, it's almost like the CCA saying, hang on, back off. We're in control here. Now, this got a bit of a reaction on Twitter, as you can, you can probably imagine. Um, now, there's kind of two ways to look at this. I suppose in one respect, you, you, you could take the view that Harrison's comments are a sign of, you know, taking the ball by the horns and saying, hang on, you know, we're going to issue a strong riposte here. Um, and you, you might say that's fair enough, you know, given that uh, PDA are strongly, and I think I think certainly justifiably, um, holding some of these uh, companies to account. Um, but I don't think that's the case. I don't, I don't think that Harrison is operating from a strong uh, uh, position here, simply because, as we've heard reports, Lloyd's Far- some Lloyd's Pharmacy branches and some Lloyd- uh, Boots branches are not particularly well run. Um, so, so for that reason alone, um, that's why I've put Harrison and, and the CCA in in bad week. If every if every Boots and Lloyd's branch was spick and spam and running smoothly and, and everything was fine, fair enough. But they're not. Um, there have been problems. So that's why they're bad. They're, they're bad week. Um, the charter, I think, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure we kind of agree. You know, the charter is exactly what uh, you know, CCA members need. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, and that given pharmacists working in those multiples, as well as, you know, other sectors, but so we're looking at the multiples, given that the, their workers responded directly to this charter, you know, Harrison and, and, and the CCA companies would, would be better off listening to, to them, wouldn't they? So that's why I've put them in bad week. Okay, so there's there's quite a lot to unpack there. So this, as you say, Neil, comes in the wake of the, the PDA's annual survey of working conditions which like you say showed an alarming decline across measures such as feeling safe at work rest breaks uh, ability to raise concerns with senior management things like this um i suppose the thing that that strikes me the most disappointing thing for me on all of this is that on such an an important issue our representative bodies can't reach a consensus or an agreed position and there seemed to be an element of posturing and point scoring here, which is regrettable. Um, Rob, what did you think? Uh, thanks, Richard. Um, just to, I just pick up on a couple of things that Neil said there. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is that um, this issue about the CCA not recognising the PDA as an expert on pharmacy safety. I think, um, obviously, the, the CCA... I think it's still the case um, is the the sort of organising force uh, behind the community pharmacy patient safety group, which brings together superintendents across a whole range of businesses to to, to share information about issues that they're coming across in their businesses, um, sharing across competitors that is, uh, and and trying to put in place um, things that that improve safety. So I, I suppose there might be a little bit coming from from that direction. But you know, every, I think all the organisations in pharmacy have got a got an interest in 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 contributing to ways of keeping the public safe, and they should just talk to each other a bit more, shouldn't they? Rather than you know disavowing uh, another organisation's perspective when they've got you know they can call upon thousands of members um, of people that they cover to to contribute to their own thinking about 
how how things might be improved for the for the sake of patients and the public. Yes, I I agree with I agree with that, Rob. It did seem a slightly odd thing to say um, for Malcolm Harrison to say that it does not recognise the PDA as an authority in matters of pharmacy safety. I I, I with you, Rob. Pharmacy safety is is everybody's issue, isn't it? Um, I think I, just to 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 read Malcolm Harrison's statement in in full, just um, for, for fairness, I suppose. Um, what Malcolm says is, we believe that pharmacy owners and the employers of pharmacists must have the freedom to choose how they will deliver a safe and secure working environment for their people, and insists that the CCA and members take the safety and well-being of pharmacy teams very seriously. Uh, we wholeheartedly agree with the principle of ensuring that all pharmacies are safe places to work and that all employees should be made to feel safe. Our members make every effort to ensure that their employees, patients and customers are provided with a safe and secure environment wherever they operate. So that's what Mr. Harrison says. Uh, but like you say, Neil, judging by some of the reaction on, on Twitter and what we know operationally uh, across the sector, um, people might uh, might take a different view on that. Um, and the Pharmacist Defence Association, maybe just to wrap this up, that, that survey, which they've done, I think, for the last three or four years, I think, um, and had been showing improvements, hadn't it, for, from memory over, over recent years. But across a lot of those measures, as we said right at the, the start of this segment, um, revealed quite an alarming decline. And so this is an issue, I think, that we really have to get to grips with as a sector. We're only going to do that if bodies collaborate and talk together and maybe a little less point scoring and more agreeing a consensus and a way forward would be helpful. We have time for any other business. Um, now, we are recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. It's nearly four o'clock. And whilst I've been... Um, drinking uh, a very nice glass of, of champagne at the French ambassador's residence to celebrate March the 1st, St. David's Day, a day late, uh, long story. But there's been some breaking news going on while I've been away involving the society. Rob, you've been following this. Um, what's been going on? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, the breaking news today about um, what looks like the departures of two out of the six of the uh, executive team at the RPS, um, I mean that's quite a that's quite a a shock to the system, I guess. Uh, not sure where it leaves the organisation's strategy, uh, particularly if, as reported, or as we understand, uh, one of the people going is the director of education and professional development, and the RPS has had a long-standing ambition to become a royal college, and it strikes me that education and professional development is pretty crucially in all of that. Um, so yeah, a little bit odd. Uh, and I'm sure more is, will come out in, in due course. The RPS are saying nothing about this at the moment. So um, there's no comment from them. Um, but it'll be interesting to hear, you know, what this means for the for the organisation going forward. Um, and I just, just observed that looking at the uh, looking at the RPS's website right now, um, Half of the half of the senior team, either on the executive team or or the directors, are now representing the publishing business, um, and um, that's an interesting uh, statement in itself. 
I only hope that the that the um, the officers of the of the RPS uh, have have made this decision with a with a positive uh, future in mind, and it will be very interesting in due course to find out what that is. Yeah, thanks very much, Rob, for that. Yes, there was a comment made at the the AGM last year, wasn't it, that from someone that said that the RPS increasingly resembles a uh, a publishing company with a small professional association attached. Um, yeah, we well, as I say, we're recording this on a uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, um, so this is kind of breaking news. By the time you listen to this podcast on a Friday, there may have been more developments. So so look out for that. Um, just one kind of a PS really that it occurred to me while I was thinking about this. There were there was a lot of activity on on social media around the time that the the renewal emails came out. Um, and I, I you know, they, it's more than the usual suspects because clearly people do like to lay into the, into the society on, on social media from, from time to time. But what, what struck me was there were some, some really kind of heartfelt and, and comments from very prominent and respected members of the profession. And by that, I mean, former council members and ex senior executives at the society were all questioning why, they should renew membership and had real doubts about doing so. And I, I, I've just picked out two here. Um, this was this was uh, towards the end of January. Um, and there's a comment from Paul Gimson, who was the, the director for Wales at the RPS for a while, who said, pains me to say I've never known the society so disconnected from the real world. I don't expect to be lectured and judged on values and told what is the right way to behave and think. I want to focus on improving pharmacy and medicine safety. And and another comment from Professor Anthony Cox, who's a former council member, who says, for the past three to four years, I've um, never felt more disconnected from the organisation. Seems to spend more time, um, seems to spend more time, or seems to be far too influenced by external social pressures more so than any other professional organization that I am a member of. So um, this is not just knee-jerk criticism. These are these are the views of, of really respected and prominent members of the profession, as I say. And and if, if that is carried, those views are carried through the, the profession or the members of the society, current members, um, if they're all feeling like that, then it's very hard to see how the society can reverse its decline in membership. Um, Rob, do you got any thoughts on this to close? I think that's a re- there's some really good points there, Richard. I mean, this is a more general point, isn't it? Really, that we're that we're into now. I think about uh, you know the the role of the professional uh, leadership body, and um, you know I've certainly been in in um, in roles in the past where you 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 come across um, things that fundamentally the RPS is seen as very much the the, the professional mouthpiece. I'm thinking, you know, some of the interactions I've had over the years with the MHRA, for instance, where what the, what the pharmacist professional body says is 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 taken extremely seriously. And so ultimately, uh, you know, most professions have got leadership bodies. They're an important part of the of the uh, professional architecture and the environment. And if you're going to have one, then um, they need to it needs to be a good one. And it you know to me there are two things there's a kind of external face and how the how an organization like the rps represents pharmacy and 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 influences all sorts of bodies in the interests of of of, of the pharmacy profession 
But then there's that really important part of a professional leadership body, which is about supporting its members in being good and great professionals. And, um, you know, in a way that the external facing bit is uh, for the good of the members, um, the, the less important bit in a way. What's really important for them and their careers is that the bit about that goes with supporting them being good and better professionals and having opportunities and and uh, the the opportunity to use their skills um, is is the most important bit. And um, I'm not entirely sure, as you say, I'm not entirely sure where the balance of all that sits right now. Um, and uh, maybe it's something that we should at some point take a good old good old look at in some depth and see if we can help work that out or work that out for for readers and, and listeners. Yes, that's a really good idea. And I think a lot of people are wondering where, where that balance is, is at the moment, Rob. Um, of course, there is a view that in this this these interlinked days with the internet and digital platforms and communication platforms and the you know the ease with which you can connect with with like-minded pharmacists with shared interests via WhatsApp and, and the like is there is there such a need for a uh, a national professional body though you know the counter view to that would be well if you're not happy stay and hold it to account because if you leave the RPS it kind of damages all of the profession so yeah, it's a really interesting discussion that we will have again, I think. Rob, Neil, do you just want to, to bring this segment to a close? Yeah, I, I, what observation I'd like to make really is, you know, when other bodies are encroaching on the RPS's territory, which they are, uh, PDA for one, it's a good example. They've been doing quite a lot on in, in areas of you know, development, almost filling a professional leadership type role and, and, and doing what the RPS probably should be doing. And... Uh, you know, when other bodies are doing what the RPS should be doing, um, you know, you and you look up the RPS getting rid of their uh, Gail Fleming was the education was involved in education, wasn't she? Uh, uh, leading on education and, and um, professional development, you it just makes people question the relevance of the RPS even more when they see this, particularly. And I know we're on a Wednesday, and, and, and you know, as you said, Richard, a lot can happen between now and Friday, but it. At the moment, there hasn't been a, a statement by the RPS and a, a, a rationale behind the decision why to get rid of um, Mr. Turner and, 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 and Gail Fleming. And, and without that explanation, a quick explanation, I think it just, which may emerge, um, it just makes people question the relevance of what they're doing, even more so, I think. Yes, no, it does. And we'll we'll see how this story you know, unfolds as the week goes on and maybe things will become clearer um, by the end of the week and by the time that listeners... Um, actually download this podcast but there are definitely questions to be answered by the royal pharmaceutical society all right let's finish it there then my thanks to rob neil and arthur for your your insightful contributions as ever all the podcasts are available on the pharmacy magazine website and from all your usual podcast providers just search for talking pharmacy oh by the way look out for our latest category insight podcast which was released earlier this week it's on the PM website and the subject is heart health. We'll all be back next week. So until then, thanks very much for listening. So I'm just coming back with a pod PS. And this is the first for the podcast. So I'm recording this on, on Thursday afternoon. Um, just to update you really on the RPS story, huge reaction uh, to our story that we broke yesterday. Um not the breaking story today, actually, as some other 
um, pharmacy publications are making out. Um, but yeah, huge reaction on, on social media, media this morning. Um, in particular, uh, Keith Ridge, the former chief pharmacist, who tweeted with fundamental reforms to pharmacy education underway and community pharmacies set to deliver more clinical services. This is a strategic mistake and will undermine the future of both pharmacy practice and the RPS. Um, and the mistake that uh, Dr. Ridge refers to, of course, is the, the, the redundancies that were announced yesterday uh, among the senior society executive. Um, also, the comment just come in this afternoon, I think, on Twitter from former president Sandra Gidley. And she says, if if true, RPS are losing two stellar members of staff at a critical time for the profession. I admire them immensely. Now, when we recorded the podcast yesterday, uh, the society hadn't said anything. And we finally, finally, they came out with a statement today, I guess, under a fair bit of, of pressure. So they finally... Um, came out of their their period of silence, and I'm going to read the the statement out to you in full now. Um, so we've got fairness and balance. The RPS says uh, the RPS strategy was launched last year, which set out our ambition to further strengthen the viability and sustainability of the organisation, to move at pace and deliver on our ambitious objectives for the benefit of our members, our customers, and the wider profession. To do that, we are working on a proposal that could result in a change in the existing structure at executive level within the organisation, and two roles have been identified at potential risk of redundancy. This is very much our proposal stage, and no final decisions or outcomes have been reached. We are unable to go into the specifics of the process for individuals due to its confidential nature, but we will, of course, go through a fair, reasonable and confidential consultation process and are supporting the individuals involved. No one should be in any doubt, the society continues, that our commitment to education and the profession's development remains the highest priority for us. And equally, support for our members, thought leadership and advocacy are core to what we do as a professional leadership body. Well, make of that what you will. But I will say that when we were developing and working on the story yesterday, we were in no doubt that the outcome we reported was correct. This isn't a time for too much speculation, I don't think, especially since this is not an anodyne process. It is also a human story. Real people are involved. But I will just add this. Um, when you get departures of executives like this, in one respect, it is an operational matter, yes. Um, so given the commitment the RPS statement says the organisation has to to major strategic areas led by the individuals concerned, one has to assume, I think, don't we, that the elected officers at the very least were involved in decisions of this magnitude. Um, after all, senior elected officers would have been involved in the selection process for these roles in the first place. <laughs> 